The Q Affair. Part two, the Q Woo. While some similarities to living people may exist in your mind on reading this novel, it is a work of fiction. So it's your problem if you have people like this in your life. Chapter two. Of course, Jazeera didn't believe in letting her heart recover between men and had gone straight from her crush on Colonel Ray Peters into her crush on the Q decoder, the tweedy and rather fatherly figure, Gerald Cross, to bridge the gap and keep her channel relevant, as well as keeping her interior castle and her personal desires vivacious, had she any stirrings in that direction. I suspected she very much had, based on those readings from Teresa of Avila's most ecstatic moments. She'd had a weird, and I thought at the time, possibly significant dream about Gerald Cross, which she related to us. I found it a bit personal a thing to be telling someone about, but since she was fond of dropping names of family members and total strangers alike on her live streams, it didn't seem any more than what could be expected. And not everyone thinks dreams are very personal. Lots of people I've met think they don't have any meaning at all. In fact, because they can't make any sense of their own dreams. I've always listened carefully to my dreams and found they tell me a lot, even things that I didn't know I knew. So this one stuck in my mind and I mulled it over for a while after she related it. There were two of her and she was on a rooftop. Gerald Cross was there too, at a bit of a distance, no doubt looking tweedy and hamster-cheeked as usual, in an authoritative Q-decoder type of way. She was near the edge of the rooftop and one of her was laughing. The other her was pushing that one behind her out of his line of sight although they were perilously near the edge of the roof and in danger of falling off. All this was happening while Gerald Cross watched, seated on a chair near the centre of the roof. She told it in a way that implied she didn't know what it meant and declared it was just a weird dream, saying, I'm rambling before moving on to bring the viewer away on another part of the ramble, as she often did in her leisurely way, when she wasn't in a temper or getting excited about something. She's hiding something, I thought, and thought of the Macbeth quote, false face must hide what the false heart doth know. I had no idea what, but of course, after what I'd researched online and written about on my little blog, one had a lot of hidden facts to choose from. What bore any relationship to Cross, or if anything did, I was doubtful, but thought perhaps she was hoping to hide some of the things that people had said about her online in the past from him, as she had from the subs in her channel. He seemed to have managed to ignore her, like Colonel Peters, pretty successfully to date, and I silently wished him luck in escaping her attentions as Peters was starting to do a little more since she transferred her obviously romantic-inclined affections to her new interest. They would have made a nice couple, to be sure. They just looked right together somehow, 
although she wouldn't have been invited to lunch at a fancy restaurant or have fitted in in his wood-panelled, book-lined office without some serious dental work and a wardrobe makeover. He, however, gave off a homely feel that would have transferred to her tiny flat, and I could see him squeezed in there, eating grits happily enough in my mind's eye, his tweedy suit jacket shucked off on her bed in favour of a comfy old sweater. His subs seemed to be on a par with Desiree's, not much in the intellectual department, with many having the same issue with demon spotting everywhere they went and eager to be told what to think about anything he chose to share with them, no matter how long it took to get to the point. He was much duller than Desiree, though, and tended to drone on without ever getting excited, which at least was something Peters had going for him, as entertainment value in my mind. I didn't fancy watching either of them, really, and only checked occasionally to see if there was any response on video to Desiree's escalation of her attempts to get a response from him, not having much of a clue about the politicians mentioned in the clues from the cue drops he was now enlightening viewers about as to the possible meanings of. Much more fun was the channel Phony Wars, a mashup channel specialising in bits of content from some of the channels that truthers like to watch, all mixed up together, edited with music and zany, hyped-up colour filters applied. Whatever it took to make the clips look like fast-paced MTV-style videos. The editing was very snappy, and the clips well-chosen and witty, with funny juxtapositions of politicians even I could recognise, from the headlines of the day or week. There were really odd pairings which created new meanings, like a shot of politicians lining up to shake hands, but all ignoring Donald Trump, who most but the Russians hated. This, with souped-up colour and hiccuping, scratched-aged film filter effect added, and maybe a quick cut to an exotic dancer found somewhere on YouTube's soft porn algorithm, pouring thin yoghurt all over herself in an artistic manner. This show was on at a convenient time of day for me and was sometimes twice a day as the creator who made the show often did live streams while editing content to allow viewers to enjoy seeing how he edited things using free software very skillfully with results I thought amazing for what he was working with and a lively upbeat chat section as well. I loved this show because it was a happy place where nobody was too mean or hating on anybody else. Even though the show had a strange charm, its forgiving outlook on life made it a nice place to be. Its patron saint or mascot was a YouTuber who became famous for having died in a shootout with police when her advertising revenue was cut off and YouTube demonetized her videos by not allowing ads on her videos anymore, with no reason given. She'd taken it on herself to visit YouTube's headquarters armed to tell them what she thought about that. She'd been a vegetarian with some really strange and colourful videos of her working out in all sorts of strange outfits and showing off her pet rabbits in a strange ritualistic way then pretending to drill them in their cute heads, edited and then edited further by phony wars until they became surreal art pieces in their own right, 
revealing more layers of meaning, depending on what other clips they were spliced together with in the show. It was mainly the politicians that got picked on in these edits in derisive ways, which I thought fair game, since they were in jobs that made so many of the rest of our lives miserable. In fact, many a morning, that show held me together by making me laugh first thing in the morning before I headed off to my own job that I was tenuously trying to hold on to, a job I'd gotten as a waitress as a ca- in a cafe in a distant sur- suburb I'd moved to. It was grim since I was in my 50s, standing eight hours a day and being expected to work as a kind of stevedore as well, unpacking and shelving heavy deliveries, as though they thought I was a 30-year-old fit man then having to prepare breakfasts for meat eaters, although like the phony wars lady, a vegetarian myself, and the smell of the cooking meat and look of it nauseated me, not to mention having to look at what customers did to the gristle they'd spat out on the plates before I washed them. At the end of the day, there were floors and toilets to wash after the dishes had been washed. Sometimes there was a Lithuanian kitchen porter that did this, and also things to do with storage of meatstuffs, which I didn't really understand. But he, like myself, wasn't always offered work and eventually left to get a job in a big hotel kitchen, I'd heard, miles out further in some beauty spot near a beach. There was no need for a chef since the food was so limited, and usually myself or the owner did the cooking of the cabbages and bacon that the country customers seemed to exist on, with the occasional scone bought when they eventually fancied something different. We didn't sell many of those, and they were retrieved from the cold room and heated in a microwave to thaw them out and freshen them up before being presented with a pat of butter in a silver paper. I was somehow embarrassed to present the food to customers, despite them looking perked up slightly at its appearance. I'd always felt sorry for aging waitresses myself in my youth when I'd been a young waitress and imagined I'd get better jobs someday, being reasonably bright and always willing to learn. I sometimes did too, having worked not just as an artist, but at tech things related to art always building up my skills with more and more certificates stored untidily in a folder as I went along. I never managed to keep the job somehow, and they became harder to get after the economy crashed globally with the collapse of the housing market. None of them were permanent jobs to start with. There not seeming to be any of those around since way back sometime in the 70s or 80s. After a while, the longer breaks on my CV added up to one big gap, ruining my chances further of being considered an asset on the jobs market forever. And I was too old to be considered a new talent either by art galleries, who I no longer even bothered showing my work to. So as I served up greasy meals to the occasional customers in the distinctly unglamorous restaurant that catered mostly to drunken country men and tired-looking pale women who sat silently for three hours over a single sip of cold tea, perhaps just to escape their studio bedsit flats and look out at the rainy street blankly, I was glad to have some colour at least and someone to have little cheerful chats with when I went home. 
I reminded myself that there were many with no job at all and no money in the middle of the city or suburbs and nobody who could help them to survive, nobody to care if they didn't. We can be surrounded by people at some times in our lives and have no one to communicate with or just nothing to say that means anything to the people who are around us in the real world since they seem to be living in some other dimension, not able to see you or you able to understand them. I'd had some good times and was good at being happy with little too. I didn't expect much from the future as a younger person might, but also knew I'd survived the past and was strong in certain ways, just ways that maybe didn't translate into imagining being a middle-aged waitress in a country restaurant. I saved carefully, waiting for the next redundancy, and watched the rain outside with the customers shifting from foot to foot, hoping to ease the pain in the soles of my feet until I got to sit down and watch YouTube, resting up after my day's work. More often than not, I fell asleep and missed half the shows when I'd eaten my evening meal that never involved either bacon or cabbage. But when I was fresh again, there was usually somebody around to say hello to in chat somewhere near a topic that interested you before you went to bed and then off to work the next morning, where the boss usually didn't say hello when he turned up, thinking about money, probably. One wonderful thing had come out of my previous period of being unemployed. I'd gotten on the housing list and been offered the small cottage out on the far edges of the sprawling suburb of the city because I was ill at the time, as well as broke, and required to be on a housing list. I was extremely surprised to find a man turning up at my flat one day to offer me a house. I'd had to move further out of the city I had never moved away from before to take it, but I'd never had any security in a flat before and rents were constantly going up, so I swooped on it eagerly. It was a real house and even had a small garden. I couldn't believe my luck and could see how that garden could be my own garden of earthly delights. The mossy laneways and byroads around the area that at first I found lonely, being so far from all the action and bustling humanity pressing up against each other in the city, felt remote at first. But slowly I came to get used to, then to love the quietness and distance from people, as I discovered I felt less solitary when I didn't have to look at so many people in the streets, all seeming to be laughing and able to be in each other's company so naturally, while I didn't seem to fit in anywhere among people. It felt right suddenly having a lot of space and being alone in the clean air, listening to the full to bursting hush, punctuated by birdsong. When I had days off, as I often did, when the restaurant was quiet once I'd opened it and waited for customers that didn't arrive and the owner had seen there was no one and sent me home again, I'd change into walking clothes and head out down the lanes towards the forests or mountains and sing at the top of my voice or just dig in my little garden, planting things and learning how to grow vegetables and flowers and fruit trees. 
I bought something for the garden whenever I got to the supermarket on the local bus that went weekly. Most weeks I made it, unless I was working on supermarket day. Then I'd have to eat something out of a box from the tiny and expensive local shops. And slowly I got to know the locals. After a few years, I knew more people to say hello to than I had in the midst of the city, except for when I'd been teaching and I'd met many students through the various courses I'd taught. I had a settled life at least, and rent so cheap I didn't think I'd have to move again, ever. What a relief to finally put down one's roots in one's own gardens, just when one is anticipating getting tired of the journey going on so long. I was fed up of starting again so regularly, without even seeming to get anywhere further, on finding I'd somehow taken a turn that came out at the same place again. But now that I'd found somewhere I could stay, I had resolved to learn to like it. So what if all the younger people, even those my age, were nowhere to be seen, having gone to the city or tried their luck abroad, and the only people left for miles were the very elderly, from an era where it was expected you'd stay if you'd inherited the land, or you'd come from abroad if an agency in Poland or Lithuania gave you a job in the one factory for miles in a small place whose language you couldn't speak. So what? I had my garden and I was putting down my roots, had my job too, and was saving my money. Things were looking up for me. My luck was in, maybe.